is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman on the menu. President Biden moments away from an address on Russia and Ukraine when the president begins. We'll bring that to you live and then follow up with an analysis of the situation. We'll look what an invasion could look like and the fallout. And we'll also get into the economics of war in Ukraine. Will those economic waves reach us? Later in the show, we will head to Ottawa, where police are finally arresting those truckers who have been protesting vaccine mandates. We'll head to London, where the Queen's two oldest sons are under some major scrutiny right now. New research finds the Omicron submariant might be worse than the original. Let's start, though, with Russia and Ukraine and President Biden's upcoming address this hour that we will again carry live when it happens. Chris Miller is director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. Chris, thanks for being with us with us. Uh, Well, of course, I'm not going to try to second guess what the president is going to say. That being said, really, what could he say? He's already given numerous public warnings directed clearly at Vladimir Putin. At this point, Putin's going to do what Putin's going to do. Well, I think that's right. In the past 24 hours, we've seen a lot of pretty worrisome signs from the Russian side that look like a preparation of a narrative that would be used to try to justify a Russian attack on Ukraine. I think Biden is likely going to try one last time to deter Russia by threatening financial sanctions on the Russian economy if it does attack. But at this point, uh, it seems like it might just be too late to deter the Russians. Yeah, for people who get kind of confused at the multiple steps and all that's going on with this, take us to this uh, eastern part of the country, this this separatist region. Explain the kind of picture there as as we can understand it right now. Since 2014, the Russian government and their security services have set up a number of militias uh, that occupy a small portion of Ukrainian territory right along the border with Russia. Uh, And over the past 48 hours, there's always been a little bit of small scale fighting, but the amount of shelling artillery fire has increased substantially. Uh, And there were a series of signs today that these um, small regions are preparing for war, evacuating citizens uh, at a large scale and also um, announcing that a a war might be imminent. It it seems like the Russian government is trying to uh, spin a tail as though the Ukrainians are actually launching an offensive against these regions. Uh, There's no evidence of that, but that does seem to be the the narrative that Russia is trying to set up at this point. And do you think that they're setting up that narrative to justify going beyond eastern Ukraine, which they sort of have been occupying in a way anyway since 2014. Are they doing this narrative so they can justify going all the way to the capital, Kiev? It's impossible to exclude that. It certainly seems like Russia is going for something bigger than it's gone for thus far. The force that Russia's assembled on Ukraine's border is the biggest fighting force that Europe's seen in decades, uh, far larger than Russia previously assembled when it set up these two um, uh, semi-governments in eastern uh, Ukraine and armed them and funded them. So its goals are substantially larger now. Whether it goes all the way to Kiev or does something slightly more limited, I think it's clear uh, whatever Russia does, it's going to look big uh, and it's going to be intended to uh, really shock the Ukrainian state and force Ukraine to uh, recognize that it's part of Russia's sphere of control, which is the ultimate goal of the Kremlin. Does it matter that we catch them in spinning these tales, catch them in, in the lie, or as long as they tell their own people and put it on their own TV, then it doesn't matter to, to them, to Russia? 
it's not going to change the dynamic internally inside Russia where will where people will believe um, whatever the story that's told to them is. I think it matters more on the international stage where uh, it's hard for Russia uh, to convince many outside observers in Europe or elsewhere uh, that this really was a Ukrainian attack, as, as Russia will claim, uh, given all the evidence we've seen from satellite photos and other sources that Russia has been preparing this now for well over two months. You know how with the pandemic, a pandemic, they talk about the before time and the after time. So if, in fact, Russia goes with a full scale invasion of Ukraine, what does the world look like after that? Well, the first question is, when does the war end? Uh, it's possible the war could be relatively short, but it's also possible that if Russia decides to try to occupy a big chunk of Ukraine or maybe even all of Ukraine, the war itself could last a long time. Um, the Russian army will probably defeat the Ukrainian army, given that it's much more technologically advanced and bigger. Um, but that's a different thing from pacifying a country. Uh, and as the U.S. learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, guerrilla movements can be uh, very hard to uh, stamp out. And so it's certainly conceivable that we're going to have fighting going on in Ukraine uh, at, at that level for some time. And even once the fighting is over, and that could take months or longer, um, in the worst case scenario, we still have to find some sort of new equilibrium between NATO and Russia. Russia is trying to really shift the goalposts of what's acceptable uh, in behavior in Europe. And so uh, the challenge uh, after this event will be to find uh, a status quo that we're willing to tolerate and that the Russians are willing to tolerate too. And I'm afraid that we're not going to get to that point without a lot more tension and a lot more militarization of European security. Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. With us right now is Robert Sanders, chair of national security at the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. That's at the University of New Haven. He's a retired Navy JAG Corps captain and a former weapons systems engineer. Thanks for being with us. From a, a military point of view, uh, try to put yourself in, in I guess, the, the heads of the military commanders on the Russian side. What, what are they doing now? What are they thinking now? Well, they're continuing to prepare. Um, they don't know when their leadership will tell them, go kinetic, cross the border, uh, take the targets that we've assigned to you and go capture them and move to, toward the end state that I want you to have, which may include Kiev, or, or it may include other areas of Ukraine. Here's a question we've asked to a few people on the show, and you probably have the best answer to it, because um, we've gotten conflicting opinions. Given the buildup and how many troops are there and how long they've been there as to date, um, if they're going to go, do they ha does he have to go soon? Because that kind of a thing is not really sustainable, having 190,000 troops out there doing drills and supporting them and, and, and having them ride along a border for all this time. Well, he does have to go at a certain point in time, but think back to the first Gulf War. How long did we sit in Saudi Arabia along the burns before we crossed into Kuwait. We sat there for a considerable amount of time in the heat uh, and the cold of that desert. Uh, I was on an aircraft carrier, so I wasn't cold, <laughs> but I was there. <laughs> and uh, the idea of how long you, can you sustain your troops on the ground, yes, you're right on point. There is a maximum end state to that activity. Uh, when you either have to move or pull back. We're and, not there yet. Okay, now what about the NATO troops? I mean, the U.S. has already said uh, we don't have any kind of a, a treaty to defend Ukraine. Ukraine is not currently a member of NATO. But yet, 
the U.S. has put more troops in places like Poland, right? So what do they do other than, I don't know, what, really? Well, there's a, there's a border between the areas in which Russia is seeking control or has control and Ukraine and our NATO allies. And as a NATO ally, we're a one-fight entity. You know, Article 5 of NATO says if you attack one, you attack all. So if this fight spills over into a NATO-controlled country's territory and they deem themselves to be under attack, they've just attacked the United States. Now, is that a a likely uh, concern, a real concern? Yes. Is it likely to happen? Not if Putin calculates carefully uh, to not widen this beyond what he can really sustain. So he can go in. We've talked about some of the different options and how far he can go. Um, but does Russia need to be prepared to lose a lot of people if they do this? I mean, we left off the last segment talking about the guerrilla warfare that, that Ukrainians are prepared for, the resistance that'll be there. Well, let's let's go back and rewind history one more time. Let's think about the Russian incursion in Afghanistan and Russia uh, in Chechnya. Uh, Russian body bags going home to the motherland is what brought those fights to us end because Russia, just like Americans during Vietnam, the individual citizens said, hey, I'm not prepared to reach the end state that you want over the bodies of my sons. So uh, leadership changed the direction. So there's a time where this fight can be sustained. There's a time and an amount of loss that Russia sustained. But that's not infinitesimal. Robert Sanders, Chair of National Security, Henry C. Lee College, uh, Criminal Justice, Forensic Sciences, University of New Haven, retired Navy JAG Corps Captain, former weapons systems engineer. Robert, thanks. What happens economically if Russia invades Ukraine? Uh, Back to Chris Miller, Director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's uh, Eurasia Program. Chris, uh, where do you want to start? I mean, oil prices, other energy costs, the markets, uh, ripple effects already, and nothing's even happened yet. That's right. And I think that it's still difficult for people to conceptualize just the disruptions that a war could bring. And so I would expect uh, the ripple effects to accelerate when actually the fighting starts if indeed a war does break out. I think there's a couple ways to think about the economic impacts. One is just people pricing in a lot more risk and driving up commodity prices across the board and driving down um, uh, other asset prices given the new geopolitical risk that's emerging. But there's also some specific uh, factors that are going to have an economic impact. The U.S. is going to impose some pretty tough financial penalties on Russia that'll uh, really disrupt the Russian economy. Um, and have a knock-on impact to commodity prices. And then there's a risk that Russia decides to retaliate by uh, trying to punish the U.S. and Europe economically or launching cyber attacks on some of our critical infrastructure. Well, and and, and in fact, let's talk about natural gas, right? I mean, uh, Germany, uh, for one, gets, I believe, most of its natural gas from Russia. They could always switch to liquefied natural gas from elsewhere in the world, but that's just going to drive up energy prices all over. That's right. And at least for this winter, Germany can't uh, satisfy all of its energy demands with liquefied natural gas. They're they're dependent on Russian gas for now, and they have to shut down industries this winter uh, if the Russians were to cut off gas or if they were to stop buying it. So they're 
really, uh, really fundamentally dependent. Uh, and the rest of Europe as well is a big buyer of, of Russian gas, less uh, dependent than Germans, but it's still pretty important. And as you say, that does have a, a knock-on effect uh, globally because Europeans have been buying a lot of liquefied natural gas off of global markets to try to provide a bit more security in case Russia does cut them off. And that does have effects on prices for everyone else in the world. I was reading a piece uh, the other day that was saying, you know, this area also is a producer of a whole bunch of the, the precious metals and things that go into chips. And we have already had all these problems with the supply chain issues with uh, microchips and semiconductors as it is. That's right. Palladium, gold, diamonds, copper, aluminum. Uh, Russia is an important supplier of, uh, of many different types of, of metals, industrial metals and precious metals. Now, Russia is not likely to cut off the supply of most or potentially even any of these products. But the reality is that we're going to have some disruptions to trade that the sanctions cause. And just the fact that Russia's in the process of invading one of its uh, largest neighbors is going to increase the price of these commodities as people start getting nervous about whether, in fact, they'll be able to buy these goods in the future. You know, uh, other than the economics, there's also this, this I suspect, uh, psychological impact. There's an entire generation, is there not, in Europe that has grown up in in pretty much a, a peaceful time. And the notion of having uh, 150 plus thousand troops, a, a potential massive invasion of a, of a country in the European continent, this is something that they have never had to get their arms around. That That's right. This is going to be the biggest change to Europe's security architecture since 1945, the end of World War II, the biggest uh, conflict uh, since that point seems to be uh, right on the brink of, of breaking out. So it's a big shock to Europe. I think it'll also be a big shock to the United States when we uh, see in action a Russian fighting force that has been invested in very heavily over the past 15 years, trained, modernized, um, and is going to be deployed on a battlefield to achieve the Kremlin's political goals. This is something we haven't had to deal with for a very long time, have a, another great power using its military um, on the border of territories that we consider friendly to us. Um, and so I think when Americans realize just exactly what's happening and the extent to which this challenges the view that we've had of having the world's most powerful military unchallenged, uh, I think Americans are going to have to update their assumptions about how dangerous the world is. Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's uh, Eurasia program. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Truckers in Canada protesting the vaccine mandates, other COVID restrictions. They've been in the capital, Ottawa, for about three weeks now, but officials now beginning to push back. They've started arresting the protesters. Police have even sealed off much of the downtown area to outsiders. With us again is Mark Day news anchor and talk show host for City News Ottawa. He's been on the ground, I think is on the ground, reporting on the arrest. Is that right, Mark? What's going on? That is correct. I'm about 20 feet away from the main line of police here that are in tactical gear. Uh, They are uh, also on horseback. Uh, There are snipers on the roof uh, here. This is Wellington Street, the main road that uh, goes right up in front of Parliament Hill. Uh, here in Ottawa, the nation's capital, and uh, a police uh, uh, enforcement that we've never seen the likes of, I don't even think, uh, in this uh, in this country. And protesters now are confronting the police who are moving forward. Uh, already 70 arrests uh, today. All right. So why today? Why now? I mean, the government's been facing a lot of resistance from people, right? Wondering um, what's taking so long. It's been three weeks. 
It has been three weeks, uh, and because of that time uh, frame, uh, even the police chief here in the city of Ottawa resigned uh, because he wouldn't take uh, the enforcement and move ahead with it. So the federal government uh, brought in the Emergencies Act, and that gives them uh, the uh, ability to control the police. So it's the uh, RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Ontario Provincial Police, also police from Quebec, to Quebec. They are in with, uh, they came in this morning, uh, marching in. So they came in on three different sides. What they're doing is moving the line uh, towards uh, Parliament Hill. And as they do it, they're making arrests and also towing away some of the trucks that are still parked here on Wellington Street in Ottawa. Apparently, a lot of the protesters are being financed, uh, both financially and in terms of sort of moral support from across the border, from us, the United States, from mostly right-wing conservative groups and some, in some cases even on air. What's going on there, Mark? I hear a lot of noise there. There is, yeah. It's just the uh, the protesters confronting uh, police again as the police start uh, to make a move forward. Here. Okay. You're okay, I hope. I'm okay. Yes, I'm in. Uh, I'm I'm in a good location here, so I'm safe. Okay. You can hear those truck horns. Too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so my question is: Are, are Canadians uh, shocked or disappointed that so much support seems to be coming from this side, the U.S. side of the border? Yeah, you know, those bank accounts, uh, you know, and the, the GoFundMe's, the Give Sends Go, they've all been uh, shut down. But what happened uh, earlier? Uh, this week is they've also started seizing the bank accounts of the organizers, those who are involved, as well as some of the truckers who are here. So they've seized their bank accounts. Uh, and that with the Emergency Measures Act allowed them to do that. So it gave the federal government the opportunity to go in and seize bank accounts. We can tell you at this point that one of the three of the main organizers have already been arrested. Uh, two were arrested last night. Another was arrested today. So they went and got the organizers, and now they're slowly uh, moving forward to arrest the truckers. And again, worth pointing out that the majority of you know truckers, they have their vaccines. They're not participating in this. So this is a, a smaller number, but it's become this whole movement. Other people joined up, and it's um, it's turned into all sorts of, you know, taking a stand for the principle of the matter or other COVID restrictions, and, and all of that kind of gets wrapped up in this. Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, there's people here who are vaccinated, uh, who are just uh, are against the federal government's way of handling the situation. They believe that the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau divided Canadians by not speaking to these uh, protesters when they arrived here in the nation's capital. And so it has been a movement from coast to coast to coast here in Canada. So is there great confidence that this is now with the arrests going to come to an end today? That's what police are hoping for. But here's the situation. Police here understand that the world is watching, and this is Canada. And uh, they're trying to, to do this peacefully without any injuries uh, and to, to do it in a way where they can arrest and, and safely get people out of, the, out, of, out of this area. I spoke to a former chief of police today, and he said that is exactly what their uh, message is right now. They want people to leave the area, they want it to be peaceful, and they don't want to show uh, aggression uh, as they're making these arrests. Mark Day, news anchor, talk show host, City News Ottawa. He's uh, right there as they're making these arrests. And that, there, there's your taste of what the people on the street have been dealing with for three weeks. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's supposed to be a jubilee turning into a downer for Queen Elizabeth in the U.K. This is her jubilee year, 70, as head of the British monarchy. Not uh, starting out well, especially this week. Prince Andrew settled the sex abuse lawsuits connected to Jeffrey Epstein. Now there's a charity led by Prince Charles that's being investigated. Mark Borkowski is an author, British publicist, crisis PR experts based in London. Mark, thanks for being here. So we covered the uh, the Andrews story. Let's go on to the Charles one. Uh, this is something about uh, one of his advisors and friends, right, helping somebody with an 
application to get to be a knight while also angling for a donation. And it seems to me, at least from this side of the pond, that it would probably be illegal to, you know, sell a knighthood. Yeah, I think the the, the British press have, have picked up on this, particularly the tabloids. Um, what tends to happen here is that uh, they get their... Uh, get their teeth into the story and they pursue it uh, and uh, it's very difficult to unlock the jaw. Uh, Charles has always um, um, suffered uh, quite a lot of press attention um, and, uh, you know, he soon will be king. The the speculation that this is uh, cash for honours is centred around one of his aides and, you know, the, the, uh, the royal family have been very quick to deal with this story um, I think that they've suffered quite a lot of negative press, both with the um, the ongoing issue around Prince Andrew and obviously uh, Meghan and Harry uh, hasn't always been very easy for them. That's generated a lot of headlines, both, you know, of course, around the world with the uh, Oprah interview. Um, but it, but it's clear that this was an individual working, um, in a sense, in isolation. Um, I, I, I really don't think that, um, although this is a, a huge donor, um, a Middle Eastern um, sort of guy who was uh, uh, investing a lot of money into the country um, was given some sort of uh, honour. But I, I think that it's more newspaper speculation. But you know what? It just adds into the narrative that the, the press sell a lot of uh, newspapers, a lot of eyeballs on these stories um, online, um, and they're having a tough time. But you get a sense that... Um, the royal family are, are striking back. They're not letting this story get out of hand as, as it has had with uh, Prince Andrew, who very much created his own negative publicity. Right. And uh, as you know, uh, 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 Prince Harry is a very effective uh, communicator with his base, obviously, in your country now. Yeah, Mark, let me interrupt for just one second, because we are now being told that uh, President Biden is about now about four minutes away, maybe, <laughs> from doing yeah. his... Uh, uh, we can always thing. move that. Yeah, yeah, who knows? But w- once he does, uh, we will uh, take that live. Mark, uh, I-, I can't help but think that the public in, in the UK uh, must feel sorry for the Queen. I mean, you know, as she's a mother and she's got these sure. two kids who are, you know, wow. I mean, any mother would just be probably pulling her hair out. Uh, the, the Queen has immense dignity, and it's a uh, you know it's a big you know it's it's been a very long reign. Um, uh, you know she's obviously you know uh, God willing got some more years in her, but you know she she represents another age, and I think there's a great um, sense of sort of comfort with her on throne. I think you know when she passes, there obviously be a seismic effect in, in this country and around the Commonwealth across the world. But do you know what? Every family, you know, has some, uh, you know, you know, some ups and downs. Um, the royal family over the years have not really played the PR game. It's been very much a controlled message built around state events. And there's a great celebration this year for a jubilee. Uh, and, and partly with the uh, Prince Andrew settlement, obviously, to get this issue out of the way and not have uh, Virginia Jeffrey spoiling the party. But yes, there's a huge amount of love um, for the Queen. And of course, you know, when when her reign ends, um, there's going to be, you know, quite a a renewal of, um, you know, of what the royal family will look like after the Elizabethan age and when it when it passes on to Charles and then obviously goes on to William. 
Um, and the royal family are pretty good at protecting the institution. They don't get these negative headlines. I mean, it's, it, you know, from the abdication through Diana, there's always been ups and downs. Um, but now we have the intense heat of the media. Um, they've, they, they've modernized their communications and they obviously um, want to support the Queen. And, and as I said, on the street, if you talk to most people, most people really love the Queen yeah. and uh, don't have the same empathy uh, with perhaps those who follow. <laughs> so as far as we know, and, it, you know, they're tight lips, but how how is she doing? Because people comment on pictures and they say, oh, you know, she looks thinner or more frail than she used to be. But also she's 96 years old. Um, she lost her husband. We've been through a pandemic, you know, as far as we know. And like you said, God willing, there's at least a few more years. She's an extraordinary servant to this country. Um, she's a, she, she, she's an icon. And um, as you said, you know, she's uh, she's she's not in her first flush of youth, um, but she's been a constant. And that's what people look towards her for being. Um you look, she, you know, she is a very strong individual with a really strong sense of duty and a real strong um, sort of idea of what the monarchy is. But she has laid the roots for the change. Um, she has obviously started to 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 allow this this change to happen, particularly after the passing of the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and I think there's a real serious way uh, that the current royal family, through Charles and then William, are thinking about its future and its relevance. Um, she she represents, you know, a, a different age of uh, Great Britain. They will pass on the mantle, have to make sense of the monarchy, you know, in the 21st century. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, in show business, they talk about tough acts to follow. How does Charles follow <laughs> <laughs> Queen Elizabeth? It's spot on. Who knows? I mean, that, that that's the problem. That's why people, you know, feel secure when she's there. I mean, you know, the Charles and Diana story is known around the world. Um, Camilla, his wife, has been rehabilitated, and particularly she will be known as 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 as, as a queen consort. Um, she's done a very good job in you know reengaging herself, but it's going to be a very different thing. And you know what? I I, I don't know what the position of the monarchy is, particularly with many of those countries in the Commonwealth who probably might want to be disengaged. Right, I was going to ask see... that. I mean, she's on the money still in half the world, and she's head of STEM, she's Queen of Canada, Queen of Australia. Does all that kind of go away when she does? I think uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, you know, you see the anti-monarchy movement, both in, in Australia and Canada, uh, and they want they, they might see it anachronistic that this is not representative of the new age. Uh, that's why this is why the royal family are dealing with this this current sort of downturn. Um, the popularity still, as you say, remains with the Queen. Uh, that popularity will will do everything to move into Charles. This is his this is his right. This is what he's been waiting for. The, the good thing about the Windsor family, they got very strong genes. Um, the Queen's mother went on, you know, beyond a hundred. Um, so I think she will she will carry on as long as she can, because, as I said, that's that's her sense of reality. Mark Borkowski, author, British publicist, crisis PR experts uh, based in London. Mark, thank you. And let's go now to the White House. President Biden. As I've been making for some months now, two vital calls that uh, on the situation in Russia and Ukraine. 
The first was to a bipartisan group of members of Congress who are currently representing the United States, along with Vice President Harris at the Munich uh, Security Conference. The second was the latest in a series of calls over the past many months with the heads of state of our NATO allies and our, the European Union to bring them up to date on what the United States thinks is the current state of affairs and what's likely to happen in Ukraine in the coming days to ensure that we continue to remain in lockstep, that is, the European Union and NATO. Despite Russia's efforts to divide us at home and abroad, I can affirm that has not happened. The overwhelming message of both, on both calls was one of unity, determination, and resolve. I shared with all of those on the calls what we know about a rapidly escalating crisis in Ukraine. Over the last few days, we've seen reports of a major uptick in violations of the ceasefire by Russian-backed fighters attempting to provoke Ukraine in the Donbass. For example, a shelling of a Ukrainian kindergarten yesterday, which Russia has falsely asserted was carried out by Ukraine. We also continue to see more and more disinformation being pushed out by, to the Russian public including Russian-backed separatists, claiming that Ukraine is planning to launch a massive offensive attack in the Donbass. Well, look, there is simply no evidence of these assertions, and it defies, defies basic logic to believe the Ukrainians would choose this moment, with well over 150,000 troops arrayed on its borders, to escalate a year-long conflict. Russia's state media also continues to make phony allegations of a genocide taking place in the Donbass and push fabricated claims warning about Ukraine's attack on Russia without any evidence. That's just what I'm sure Ukraine's thinking of doing, attacking Russia. All of these are consistent with the playbook the Russians have used before to set up a false justification to act against Ukraine. This is also in line with the pretext scenarios that the United States and our allies and partners have been warning about for weeks. Throughout these tense moments, the Ukrainian forces have shown great judgment and, I might add, restraint. They refused to allow the Russians to bait them into war. But the fact remains, Russian troops currently have Ukraine surrounded from Belarus along the Russian border and with Ukraine to the Black Sea in the south and all of its border. You know, look, we have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week. In the coming days, we believe that they will target Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, a city of 2.8 million innocent people. We're calling out Russia's plans loudly and repeatedly, not because we want a conflict, but because we're doing everything in our power to remove any reason that Russia may give to justify invading Ukraine and prevent them from moving. Make no mistake, if Russia pursues its plans, it will be responsible for a catastrophic and needless war of choice. The United States and our allies are prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory from any threat to our collective security as well. We also will not send troops in to fight in Ukraine, but we will continue to support the Ukrainian people. This past year, the United States provided a record amount of security assistance to Ukraine to bolster its defensive. $650 million from javelin missiles to ammunition. We also previously provided 
$500 million in Ukraine and humanitarian aid and economic support for Ukraine. And early this week, we also announced an additional sovereign loan guarantee of up to $1 billion to strengthen Ukraine's economic resilience. But the bottom line is this. The United States and our allies and partners will support the Ukrainian people. We will hold Russia accountable for its actions. The West is united and resolved. We're ready to impose severe sanctions on Russia if it further invades Ukraine. But I say again, Russia can still choose diplomacy. It is not too late to de-escalate and return to the negotiating table. Last night, Russia agreed that Secretary of State Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov should meet on, Feb on February 24th, February 24th in Europe. But if Russia takes military action before that date, we'll be clear that they have slammed the door shut on diplomacy. They will, have they will have chosen a war, and they will pay a steep price for doing so, not only from the sanctions that we and our allies will impose on Russia, but the more outrage the rest of the world will visit upon them. You know, there are many issues that divide our nation and our world, but standing up to Russian aggression is not one of them. The American people are united. Europe is united. The transatlantic community is united. Our political parties in this country are united. The entire free world is united. Russia has a choice between war and all the suffering it will bring or diplomacy that will make a future safer for everyone. Now, I'm happy to take a few questions. Uh, Nancy from Bloomberg. Uh, thank you so much, sir. Do you think that it is wise for President Zelensky to leave Ukraine if an invasion is as imminent as the U.S. says it is? That's a judgment for him to make and a determination as to whether or not I've spoken with Zelensky a dozen times, maybe more, I don't know. And, uh, and uh, it's uh, in, in the pursuit of a, di a diplomatic solution, uh, it may not be, fall it may, may be the wise choice, but it's his decision. And do you have any indication about whether President Putin has made a decision on whether to invade? Do you feel confident that he, that he that hasn't made that decision already? As of this moment, I'm convinced he's made the decision. We have reason to believe that. There seems to be a unanimity of spirit to do between the United States and Europe to do some sanctions, the comprehensive sanctions. But are, is everyone on board with the exact same sanctions that you want to do? Uh, yes. Um, there will be some slight differences, but none. There will be more add-ons than subtractions. And President Putin is going to oversee some nuclear drills this weekend. How do you see that happening? What, what's your reaction to that, sir? Thank you. Well, um, I don't think he is remotely contemplating nuclear, using nuclear weapons. But I do think it's, uh, I think he is um, focused on trying to convince the world that he has uh, the ability to change the dynamics uh, in Europe in a way that he cannot. Um, but I, I don't uh, — how much of it is a, uh, a cover for just saying we're just doing exercises and, and there's more than that, I, I just can't — it's hard to read his mind. Mr. 
You are convinced that President Putin is going to invade Ukraine. Is that what you just said a few moments yes, ago? Yes, I did. Yes. So is diplomacy off the table then? No. There's all until he does, diplomacy is always a possibility. What reason do you have to believe he's considering that option at all? We have a significant intelligence capability. Thank you very Thank much. President Biden from the White House there on the situation with uh, Russia and Ukraine. And uh, again, saying he's convinced at this moment Putin has made his decision to invade, uh, laying out what he says are the, the current state of affairs, that no, Ukrainians are not escalating things on the border reason. Why would they do that? That that's being fabricated by Russia. And then uh, saying that the, he expects Russia to move all the way into it, Kiev. It, right, in, into the, the capital of Ukraine. So a lot more than, you know, some strategists were suggesting that perhaps the Russians would only go into the eastern portion of Ukraine. But the president, President Biden, seems to believe that uh, the decision was made by Mr. Putin that when the time comes, it would go all the way to the capital of Ukraine. All right. We have uh, Robert Sanders, chair of the National Security uh, Program, Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice, uh, University of New Haven, back with us, retired Navy JAG Corps captain. And um, Robert, your thoughts on uh, what the president uh, just said? Well, he's being consistent, which is an important thing. He's telling us what he has been doing, which is consistent with what's been going on all week, telling our allies, bolstering our allies, getting the NATO UN um, as, as it can the UN, because, of course, you know, Russia has a veto in the Security Council, um, getting the uh, EU all to line up in one direction to say, If you do this, Putin, there are going to be consequences, and you're not going to like the consequences. So is the end state you desire worth the risks you're going to take and the potential new end state that will exist if you act? You know, I was reading earlier in the week some criticism of the president's constant uh, rep- you know, his repetition of, you know, we are not going to be sending troops on the ground uh, into Ukraine. And for obvious reasons, it's not a, a NATO ally. We don't have a treaty to defend them. But the criticism that uh, I'm talking about took the, the line that is that such a good idea to keep telegraphing to Vladimir Putin that, yeah, you'll suffer economic consequences and, and diplomatic consequences and perhaps moral and ethical ones around the world, but you don't have to worry about encountering uh, any real resistance in terms of a large army. Well, there's this concept that the world runs around. It's called the instruments of national power. And these instruments line up in an acronym called DIMEFIL, D-I-M-E-F-I-L. Diplomacy, information, military, economics, finance, intelligence, and law or law enforcement and legal. So the president is exercising that concept, the instruments of national power, by diplomacy and economics. The UN says that under Article uh, 2.4, that all nations, the charter of the UN, all nations should uh, respect the territorial integrity and the peace of each other. And then under Article 51, it says, but if attacked, you have the right of self-defense. 
That's what our NATO agreement is. It's a right of self-defense of NATO members. Ukraine's not a member. They don't get that same right under NATO. They do have that right under the UN. And how did we get to Kuwait to fight the first Gulf War? Kuwait said, hey, by the way, world, I'm being attacked by Saddam Hussein. Uh, I want to exercise the collective aspect of Article 51. Everybody join with me and let's go fight this guy together. Well, they're going to do that, but it's not going to be the M. It's not going to be the military. It's going to be the E. It's going to be the economic fight against this activity. Is that just because this is Russia? It's got the army. It's a nuclear power and we're not going to get into World War Three. Yeah, that's part of it. That's a very big part of it. Um, another part of it is, you know, what did we just finish in terms of the last um, multiple times I've been overseas in an armed conflict location from you know the first Gulf War to Iraq to Afghanistan? Um, the United States public is not looking to go into a hot war with, with anybody, even Russia over Ukraine. Um, other parts of the world may be more attuned to do that. Maybe some of the border states might decide that I will provide Ukraine with things that they need in order to do this fight. Uh, that may not be boots on the ground. It may be more like what the U.S. is doing, with the, which is arms and training. Uh, but they'll get involved if it's in their home interest. You know, as well as anyone, maybe more than most, that when wars begin, they're unpredictable, right? So how dangerous? Well, we have a concept called the enemy gets a vote. And they get to decide what they're going to do. And then you have to respond. And you can pick your response, but the risk of picking your response means you live with that response. So there's, a, there's, a, there's another thing called ends, ways, means, and risks. So the ends are what you're seeking, the states you want at the end of acting in a military manner. The ways are the things that you're going to um, do, do it in. The means are the things that you're going to do it with. And the risks are the things that are on the table when you take that action. All that's at play right now. And it's at play not just for Russia, not just for Ukraine, but it's at, at play for those governmental entities like the UN, the Security Council, NATO, the EU, and for each individual country. What do you think Putin's end game is? Does he want to take Ukraine and, and keep it forever? Or, I mean, yeah. what does he do at the end of this? His, his end game is to reconstitute as much of what used to be called Mother Russia Soviet Union as he can before the rest of the world says enough. And what President Biden is, is apparently trying to do is get the rest of the world to say enough right now without the M, but using the D and the E. And to a certain extent, the, the last one, law, um, by declaring a lot of these things unlawful. Uh, you can't get through Security Council because Russia has a veto. But you saw last week the idea of taking it there and airing Russian dirty laundry. Um, that's InfoWars. So we're in the process of doing that right now. That's been happening every day for the last couple of weeks. It's disinformation by the, by the Russians about what they're doing. And as the president just talked about, um, trying to bait Ukraine into a fight with disinformation and actions by their little green men, those um, Russian-backed insurgent forces in the South.
it's also Infowars from the United States, the, the first eye in Dinefield, telling the world as much of the second eye, the intelligence, the truth, so that the, the disinformation doesn't work and doesn't stick. Robert Sanders, National Security, University of New Haven, retired Navy Captain Robert, thank you. So doctors have been warning of a new COVID variant could pop up, cause problems like Delta and Omicron, and uh, maybe it's already here. New research from Japan finds the Omicron subvariant BA2 may have features that make it as capable of causing serious illness as older variants of COVID, including Delta. Dr. Daniel Rhodes is section head of microbiology at the Cleveland Clinic. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So how much of a concern is there about this sort of a sub-variant of Omicron BA2? Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think, I mean, COVID's been a concern for two years and, you know, BA2 is the latest flavor. And uh, the study, you know, makes it look like it's, uh, it's going to be worse than the, the first version of Omicron. So that's, that's uh, always concerning. And what do we know about it? Now, because when this started popping up and it did, you know, take over parts of like Denmark and South Africa, the line we were getting was, you know, what, it looks pretty similar. It's probably going to work the same way. Maybe it's a little more infectious, but nothing to write home about. Uh, what are they seeing that, that changes things? And are they seeing it in like hamsters or people? Right. Good questions. So I, I think it's generally still true that it's BA2 is more similar to the original Omicron variant than than previous variants. Uh, what? The data from this study in Japan looks, looked at hamsters and, you know, in vitro studies, um, but there, there are data from humans. So the UK puts out updates uh, about weekly, and they see that BA2 is taking over more and more of the proportion uh, of disease. So it's kind of outcompeting the original Omicron variant. Uh, so, so it does look like in the real world, it's it's doing a better job from the virus's perspective than the original variant. And from this study out of Japan, it looks like maybe it's causing worse disease, at least in their hamster model. Okay. So do we know anything about the efficacy of the vaccines of prior infection? Yeah. Good questions. So it looks like Omicron, whether it's the BA1 or the BA2 uh, has pretty good immune escape uh, compared to Alpha and Delta when it c- comes to vaccination. That said, um, there's good evidence that vaccine prevents severe disease. But as you know, a lot of people who have been vaccinated can still get Omicron, whether it's BA1 or BA2. This study out of Japan uh, was interesting because they com- contrasted BA1 versus BA2, and they showed that antibodies uh, against one still worked against the other, but not, not great. Uh, you know, it wasn't a one for one. So, so BA1 and BA2 are more similar to the, each other than the previous variants, but they're still a bit different. So then people are asking, though, why hasn't it taken over the second one yet? Because we've, it's not like it popped up yesterday. Like we've known about it for a little while. So if it is worse, shouldn't we be seeing more of these effects I don't know, right now? Yeah, there's, that's, you guys have great questions. So uh, I think um, what could happen is it could outcompete BA1 as, as is being seen in, in the UK. And it's, 
here in Cleveland, we're seeing more and more uh, BA2. It's just kind of breaking onto this scene. But we're also exiting the time of year in the Northern Hemisphere that we normally see a lot of respiratory viruses. Uh, you know, most coronaviruses uh, are winter viruses. So my concern is that uh, this might be kind of the next variant that emerges maybe next winter when when COVID returns in force. Okay, but then that raises the question by next winter, companies like Moderna and Pfizer are hoping to have Omicron variant, uh, you know, batches Give of Give me va- my BA2 shots. Yeah. yeah, but but those were designed for the original Omicron. Would they really work against what might be a more uh, pernicious subvariant? Yeah. So, so the best guess, and the data are super limited, but looking at this study out of Japan, it suggests that there is crossover in the immunogenicity between the old Omicron or BA1 and the new Omicron or BA2. So even if the vaccine was uh, t- you know, designed to look like BA1, your body should still have some crossover immunity against BA2 better than the original, uh, the original vaccines. Now that's, that's making a lot of assumptions along the way, but that's uh, my best guess with the evidence we have on hand. Does it still, I don't know, boggle your mind, frustrate you, make you scratch your head, whatever, pick your term, that so many people still don't have their booster shot when we've said time and time again, hey, your best chance at, you know, not having a tough Omicron case is to get that third dose. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you feel like you're you're uh, singing the same song over and over again. Yeah, I mean, vaccines are still great at keeping people out of the hospital. And, um, and it is disappointing if people choose not not to go that route, either to get, get vaccinated or or to get uh, you know a third dose, a booster shot, um, but all the evidence we have is that that's still uh, the vaccines that are available are the best way to prevent severe disease. So, I you know I'm vaccinated and boosted, and I'm glad for the opportunity, and I'm glad for anybody else who takes that opportunity. So we're on the threshold of going into year three of the pandemic. Are we going to have this discussion, you know, as we go into like year four and five? That's what I'm wondering too. We're all wondering that. You know, I'm I'm hoping to everybody's hoping it settles down and reaches a steady state that we'll call an endemicity. But it remains to be seen. I think it's anybody's guess. You know, we we know that the flu virus uh, mutates uh, from time to time. And it remains to be seen whether uh, the covid virus is going to settle down. Uh, and kind of pick its favorite variant that works the best or if it's going to keep changing. Well, we can almost hope for more seasonality, right? Because then that gives you a chance to prepare for what's coming next rather than just it spreading through populations at a certain level, because then you can never really catch up to it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we'll, you know, we almost caught our breath last summer. I remember before Delta came, we thought things were maybe petering out uh, and then Delta came and then Omicron came. Uh, so, you know, I'm hopeful, again, maybe things will settle down this summer before next winter. Dr. Daniel Rhodes, Section Head Microbiology, Cleveland Clinic. That's in-depth for the week. We'll be back Tuesday, holiday Tuesday, weekend. Right. See you Tuesday.